Welcome to Bob Into Buildings. Tonight I'm looking at the energy from waste plant at the bottom of Richmond Hill. The architect's practice of Savage and Chatwick designed it, and I asked Mark Savage, was the site already known for the incinerator? Yes, it was. There'd been a fairly extensive site selection process, um, and they ended up up with the site that it now sits on in um, near Middle Farm in Braddon. Um, so we were brought in at that point, so we knew that that's what we had to deal with in terms of the site. What was your initial reaction when somebody rang up and said, we want you to design an incinerator? Um, well, yeah, it was, it was odd because at that stage we'd never done one before. We, we've done a number since, but we, at that stage we'd never done one before. And uh, there's a process to incineration or energy from waste, as it's now um, more correctly known. Uh, and it's, it's basically um, a process design that, that builds in its volume um, from rubbish in at one end to into the furnace, uh, which is quite, quite a big item of kit. Um, then then the, the, the fumes are cleaned, the bottom ash is taken out, and the whole thing goes to a flue. So the process is, is the same for all of these buildings, um, but we'd never done it before, and we thought it might be different to to try and do it in a different way. Uh, and rather than creating, as had gone before, um, a series of boxes with a chimney at the end, we create something a bit more sculptural, architectural, um, that perhaps people would think, oh, that's interesting, and what is it? And I think that's probably what's happened, because now people do do that. Uh, I understand the taxi drivers take it past and say, have you seen our incinerator? Um, so it, it has created an interest. People love it or hate it. Um, but it's led us on to other things in the UK and, and throughout the world in, in designing these buildings. So uh, it's been very good to us. So at some stage you had the telephone call yes. and you knew very well that you were going to be the architectural practice to design an incinerator. Yes. So presumably you have to pull information into the practice to in order to actually design what I should imagine will be the inside first. Yes, um, as I say, there is a process, and we have to understand that process before we can design a building around um, the process. And, and there was a firm employed directly by the Alamand government called McCarthy Ramball, uh, which was consisting of a local practice here and, and one that came from um, Denmark. And, and we, with them, learned the process, learned what they needed to do as engineers, and what we needed to do in order to clad those structures that were, were internal. And from that um, came the design. Um, so it was, it was an iterative process with us and, and some energy consultants. Then all of a sudden you've got to clad it. Yes. So that is where you sit down with the planners. I shouldn't think the planners are worried about the insides of it, are they? Uh, the, the planners weren't particularly worried about the insides of it, except for the, the environmental aspects of it, because clearly of there's an environmental impact and there was an environmental impact study. Um, but in terms of the, the, the building itself, they weren't terribly concerned with the inside because you can't really see it. And uh, we, we then presented them with a concept, which isn't, too different to the concept that now sits on that site and, and asked them what their comments were because it was a bit of a bold step and um, they were fully supportive to be honest with you they they felt that the, the site deserved something more than the box with a chimney. I'm assuming also with the architectural side for you 
you have to consider all four elevations. Does, does that bring concerns? Not really. I mean, generally as an architect, you should consider all four elevations. They should, I was always taught at university there should never be a back to a building, and um, it, it still holds good today. Um, so you do look at these things in three dimensions. And particularly with a design such as this, where you can't visualise it in two, so we had to build a 3D model and we had to, to um, rotate that and look at the various views that you got to and from it. And, and that's how we developed the concept, in three dimensions rather than two. Once you'd sort of got the insides mentally and all on a plan, does heat come into it? That you've got to sort of consider that all of a sudden you've got a great ball of fire right in the middle of your building? Well, well you have, although... Um, it's not really a heat-giving process in the sense that there is the equipment will, in fact, cool the process down so that you won't go inside the building and find it's terribly hot in there. It's generally just an ambient temperature. Um, and the process itself will deal with itself. All that we really need to do is make sure that it can be accommodated, make sure it can be ventilated, make sure that it, that, that it can um, emit its flu emissions, and, and so on and so forth. So we've, we've got to look at... We've got to look at how it works rather than try and find a building that makes it work, uh, if you see what I mean. So all of a sudden the planners said, yeah, that, that doesn't look too bad. Come back with some plans. Presumably you've got to work the material of the cladding out. Yes, yes. We, we, we wanted a material that was fairly neutral. Uh, we didn't want anything that was colourful, uh, which a lot of cladding materials are these days. Um, because the surrounding landscape is, is, is quite gentle, rolling green fields, trees. Um, it would have been a shame to do anything to impact that landscape. And we wanted to keep it as neutral as possible. Let the landscape reflect off the building rather than, than create something that you say, oh, what's that, in the middle of a, of, of a what, are, what is an attractive landscape. So that's the, that's the way we approached it. And I think, again, the planners were supportive of that. Had you clad such a big building before? Um, we were in the process of cladding uh, the um, MEA power station at the, the 85 megawatt CCGT station. So those two were the biggest we'd ever done. Uh, we'd done the National Sports Centre before then, so that's a big building, but nothing of this scale. Um, and as I say, since then, we've, we've done a lot of buildings of that size, so we're quite used to it. That was the first. Has the buildings that you've done around the world and in the UK, yes. has that followed on it has. from the expertise that you it learned? Has. The, the, the design, actually, from, from the Alleman plant um, was built into the UK Department of um, Environment uh, handbook for designs of buildings or design exemplars of buildings of this type. And as a consequence of that, which we were contributors to, we, we got commissions... Uh, all over the UK. Um, we've, we've recently worked in the Cayman Islands in, uh, for a commission there. And, and it's, it's, all, it's all derived from the work we did here, where you get a name as an architect for being able to do something different, uh, which we did, and, and we continue to do it, I'm pleased to say, over a period of about 15 years. The good thing about it is, because normally after you do something as iconic as that, you just put it in a drawer and don't do it again. But obviously you've had vast spin-offs. Well, we, we have. Um, we've worked in a number of areas. Uh, we work with bigger buildings than this. The, 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 the plant we did in Plymouth um, was probably three times the size of, of the Isle of Man. Uh, in fact, slightly bigger because it's 200, um, 200 tonnes per annum throughput and the Isle of Man is, is 60, 65. Um, so the scale kept going up. 
but the, the problems are still the same if you, if you understand that you still got to look at the context of, of your site how that site how that building then impacts on the site and the surrounding areas so the problems are slightly bigger but but generally they're the same working out i should imagine access to the site was quite quite easy uh, generally speaking, it wasn't too bad. We, we've had worse. Um, the one we did at, at Plymouth, for example, was in the, the centre of um, Devonport Dockyard, which is a secure area. So we had to create a secure corridor into the site. Um, and then everybody that worked there had to have a permit to work and so on and so forth because the MOD were, were all over it. So the Alaman was a breeze compared to that. <laughs> so all of a sudden we come to the iconic chimney. Yes. And yeah. the design of that is something very specific. Did you suggest alternatives to the planners? Uh, we did look at alternatives, um, but in all of those alternatives, we, we had the same thing in mind, which is to create something other than um, a, a functional flue, um, because a lot of the plants that, that had gone before that simply had a slip-form concrete flue, um, which was not attractive. Um, it, was, it was what it was. Um, and we wanted to create something a bit more sculptural, a bit more interesting, and we created a number of variations on that theme that we, we asked the planners to look at. And generally speaking, they agreed with us that what, what we've ended up with, in fact, is not terribly different to my first sketches. It, it may be slightly more buildable, but then again, when you do the first sketch, you don't think about that. Uh, but it is pretty much the same as, as that which, which we envisaged in the first place. Did you learn lessons from doing the design of it? We did. We learned a lot of lessons from from doing the design. Um, if if I was to do it again, which we did, uh, the first thing you do is engage very early with the process engineers, um, the people that make this building work, make their equipment work. Uh, talk to them in detail about what they want, what they need, and then work with them. Rather than a lot of the buildings we were subsequently brought into, came at the end of that process that. A plant had been designed in principle, it had been costed, now how are we going to clad it? And that is not as successful as that hand-in-hand process that you carry out from the start of the job with those that are concerned with building the functionality of it. What's the reaction now when you drive up Richmond Hill and see it? For me? uh, For me, I'm I'm very proud of it. I think we, we did something that was very different. Uh, we did something that was groundbreaking at the time, um, not just in the UK, but probably worldwide. Um, and a lot of countries, you know, we, we've looked at various things, a lot of countries are catching up with the UK way of doing things now. And the UK way of doing things now derived partly from the Isle of Man, which is rather than having um, a functional building, it is a big building. No matter which, which size that building is, it will be big. And if you're going to create a building that big, the planners are saying, oh, well, look at that, we, we can have one of those, or we can have something that's very interesting. We don't have to have something that's completely dull, uh, and as a consequence of this function. That must be quite refreshing to work with planners like that, because planners come in for a fair amount of criticism occasionally. But for them to say to you, you can go that one step beyond... Yes. It must have been very refreshing. It, it, it was refreshing. And I think you, you say, it was. what did we learn? I think it was a learning process for the planners also. And that um, we found in talking to various authorities uh, in the UK since we've been doing these buildings, that there, there is now an expectation that you'll create something that, that's very different um, and perhaps um, is, is unique. Um, and they're looking for that. 
whereas they weren't really looking for anything other than a big factory before. So I think the planners have learned and they've had an educational process and now they expect this. The incinerators that you have been working on across, are they generally on industrial estates? Because it was a bold step to put it on the site of an old farm. Um, it was. Uh, we have been, we did a, a scheme in Staffordshire um, where it was a site that was next to, it was next to a brick quarry as I remember, but it was in the countryside, it was on the edge of it and you could see it for miles, you could, you could see it from Cannock Chase and in Staffordshire and, and sites such as that are not uncommon um, as long as they have decent transport links um, and the zoning is compatible then, then the planners are happy to let them be developed but again they want, they want something different. They want to, to you, you can't avoid seeing these buildings, I mean they're just there and they're big. So they want something that uh, creates an architectural interest and um, so it's not unusual. Um, it's, it's probably more usual to have them in, in areas that are, we, we, we did one in the Cayman Islands that were on the edge of a, a municipal rubbish tip um, and, and on the edge of an industrial estate. Well, the only part of the Cayman Islands it is that, that, that sort of zoning but, but, but it can be anywhere. I next moved on to the site itself and asked John Garrett the role of the operations manager. I am responsible for the team that operates the site. Um, so there's three guys that actually run the, pro the process. There's a shift manager, a senior operator and an operations technician. So if you drive past the site any time at night or over a weekend, there'll be those three guys that are operating the entire facility. Um, there's then a, a small team of day operations assistants. There's four guys that are responsible for the daily goings-on at the plant, things like removing scrap metal from the site and doing waste spot checks for vehicles that are coming in to make sure there's no non-conforming waste that's, that's coming into the site. And then we're basically, as part of my job, I'm responsible for all of the raw materials coming to sites, the so things like like the lime that we use in the flue gas treatment process um, to the ash which leaves the site and goes down to Turkey Land's quarry. Things like uh, air pollution control residue which is taken over to the, the UK for disposal. So if, if I've got a big lorry and I've got a whole load of waste that I want to bring to the energy from waste plant, I'm a bit suspect about something on there, you're the go-to guy. Yeah, so the member of our day operations team called uh, Matty, and he was recruited specifically to find non-conforming waste. So he has quite a good rapport with all of the different haulage drivers that comes in. So some of them, sometimes if they think that there might be something on the back, they'll mention it to him. He'll be able to then have the load put onto the floor. They'll be able to find the items and reload them. He generally tries to do around about 70 to 80 spot checks a month, which is, is pretty flat out. I mean, you, you know, we're talking a lot of the time about putting 10 to 15 tonnes of waste onto the ground and then having to sort through it with a loading shovel to try to find, um, you know, oversized pieces of wood or oversized tyres and, and that kind of thing. Sounds fun. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he, he loves his job. If, if you met him, he absolutely loves his job. He's a very, very happy-go-lucky kind of guy. Assuming 80 loads then, yeah. on average, what percentage do you have to refuse? At the moment... Um, if you take last month, for example, none. Uh, I mean, we've done a lot of work with um, the hauliers on the island, educating them as to what they can and can't bring in. 
you know, there is there used to be this misconception that, you know, we can burn anything. So if you bought in a three foot wide tree stump, it will burn. Or a grammar um, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, the, the general principle is, you know, it's a machine at the end of the day. And every machine has tolerances as to what it what it can accept. Um, it takes 40 minutes for the waste to, to burn out from when it enters the grate to when it leaves the grate at the other end. So... You know, we're we're turbocharging that fire by absolutely, you know, ramming air into it to get as much um, energy as we can. If you have a three foot wide tree stump, you're not going to burn it out in in 40 minutes. It's just not going to happen. So then it it would get stuck. I mean, if you went back two years, we were having up to 12 stoppages a year from non-conforming waste. Each stoppage costing about £25,000. Last year, we had none. We've had none at all this year either. So the work that, that we've done on educating the hauliers and the work that we did in partnership with the Isle of Man government to create a new waste acceptance criteria, the recruitment of, of Matty to increase the number of spot checks that we've done and educate the hauliers better through a, a process called the Safety in Mind process where we, we educate the hauliers on how to do things safer. All of those have had a, a huge impact. Tonight on Bob Into Buildings, I'm looking at the energy from waste plant. And Johnson Brennan's role is to keep plant stoppages to a minimum. Yep, so I'm the maintenance manager, so we've got a team of maintenance technicians on site. uh, And we also rely on uh, specialist contractors, um, a lot of local contractors, to make sure the, the plant keeps running. And is this on a regular, what, daily basis or something like that? Yeah, there's uh, various uh, preventive maintenance checks uh, that need to be carried out. Uh, some of them, uh, you know, as, as frequently as weekly and some of them uh, can last a bit longer, whether it be six monthly or annual uh, in-depth checks. And, and how do you check things? Like, is it dials and things like this or is it just visual? Um, a lot of stuff is still old-fashioned visual uh, and lubricating things, uh, but we do have some sort of high-tech equipment. Um, we've got various uh, condition monitoring equipment that we use to analyse uh, vibration patterns in rotating equipment like pumps uh, or uh, motors and fans. And, of course, the turbine that's generating the electricity um, that spins around pretty fast, so that's something we need to, to keep an eye on. We've got seven people in our maintenance team that that cover a range of skills to um, make sure if there is an incident, uh, we can usually come to site and resolve it without the plant shutting down. An incident is sort of like a blockage that John was saying about big tree trunks and things like that. But are you positively checking all day, every day, to make sure you don't get these problems? The plant probably has somewhere in the region of about a thousand instruments and sensors um, dotted around the place which um, most of them feed back to the control room Um, it's quite a a high-tech process you know the plant operates itself um, and a lot of the things that can go wrong can be flagged up before they're really a a problem uh, by the systems so this is where you like jump into action that's right, yeah, so, you know, we might have... Screwdriver, spanner, and away you go. Yeah, and other tools as well, hammers, things like that. Talking there to Johnson Brennan, Mike Spires is the technical plant engineer at the Energy from Waste Plant, so he tells me about his role. So I'm the uh, plant engineer, okay. um, so I'm responsible for looking after the normal operating conditions on site to make sure that everything is um, performing as well as it should do uh, within our key performance indicators. 
um, and I also look after major projects on site where uh, improvements or repairs or uh, upgrades are carried out. Is this what, a 9 till 5 job or are you just generally on call? Uh, no, I've got a, a good situation again where it's uh, Monday to Friday. Uh, fortunately, no, no call-outs for me. So you're part of, of the Suez Group, which operates energy from waste plants. So do you talk to them all about the various aspects of this scheme against other schemes? Yeah, so um, we're part of uh, Suez UK, who operate another eight energy from waste facilities. Each one of those facilities has the same staff structure as we do. So you'll have uh, operations managers, maintenance managers and technical plant engineers who we all get together every two months and discuss what's going on. Um, so we compare the sites operationally. Um, we all look at the same metrics. We compare the performance of the plant using a metric called overall equipment effectiveness. So that's looking at how well the plant is performing against its design, against the uh, operator set point that's been put in, and how long the plant is online against what it's budgeted to, to perform against. So all of our plants are, are compared in the same way to monitor the performance of how well they're running. And is the plant here in the Isle of Man working to full capacity or has it got some extra capacity that could be used? Uh, so we don't run at full capacity. Uh, we run at around 70% load. Um, we have about a 10,000 tonne shortfall of waste against the design of the plant. Uh, so we are capable of accepting around 60,000 tonnes per year uh, and on average we receive about 50,000. So there is quite a lot of headroom available to up the load of the plant if it was required. I think possibly it was designed not to have to run at full capacity. Uh, so when the uh, plant was designed um, back in the late 90s, um, we needed to be able to have a facility that would be able to accept the waste uh, going forward for 25 years. So um, being on an island, we're in a very different situation to the UK where um, they build a facility to accept a certain amount of waste and they, they run that facility at 100% load. Uh, here on the island, uh, we don't have the ability to turn waste away um, and also the uh, technology that's in, installed on the island has to last for the duration of the contract. So the forecast was built assuming a certain population growth over those 25 years uh, with a waste flow forecast as well. So the facility would have been built to be able to to be able to process that waste over, over the years. So yes, a, a capacity increase would have been factored into the uh, design of the building. Since the building has been built, have there been upgrades in technology which you have been like adding on to the, this present operation? Uh, so yes and no. Um, quite interestingly, when we uh, build a new facility, um, which we have probably four or five brand new facilities in the UK now, uh, when you go and have a look at those, the technology for processing the waste is pretty much identical to what we currently have. Uh, however, there are improvements in monitoring systems, uh, in combustion control systems, um, which basically uh, make the, the plant run more efficiently, uh, more reliably, and we can monitor things to a much higher degree of accuracy. So over the years, we have been in, uh, installing those sort of systems to, to bring our plant up to scratch with brand new facilities. John Garrard, the operations manager, confirmed the need for continual upgrades. So the, the two most significant upgrades, um, the first one was uh, an upgrade of the fire suppression system. 
Um, now, obviously, as part of the insurance for the building, the insurance company want to know that the building is protected as much as possible, in this instance, from fire. So although when the building was first um, built, it had all of the fire suppression system that the insurance company were, were happy with, um, things have moved on since then. There's new technology which has been brought out, new, new types of fire suppression system. Um, so a, a large install was carried out last year to upgrade that system. Um, it did things like including a lot of foam suppression systems. So um, if you take the waste bunker, for example, it used to have two water cannons which just fired water at, at a fire. So now there's two, the same two cannons which fire a, a foam instead and a second cannon which we can have down in the reception hall. There's also a lot of new fixed deluge um, systems and some gas suppression systems as well. The total upgrade was a £600,000 upgrade, so it, it's you know we're talking significant amounts of money here. Um, but the alternative is is that your insurance continues to go up, or alternatively, you're uninsurable. The second big upgrade that we did was on the SEM system, so that's the Continuous Emissions Monitoring System. So the emissions are, are monitored continually um, as they go out of the stack. Um, now, there was some new um, legislation which was brought in throughout Europe, which is called EN 14181, um, and it's basically about the uh, repeatability of the, the SEMS equipment. Um, and our uh, original SEMS equipment was designed and built before this new regulation came in, which meant that although it was completely accurate, it was... Um, checked by a third-party company every three months to make sure that, that the system was working correctly and all that data was published on our website. It was um, given to the Environmental Protection Unit. We had to um, put in place an upgrade. Um, so a brand new emissions monitoring system was installed um, two years ago uh, for both lines, for the primary line and for the clinical secondary line. One of the things which was positive element for us is that um, it resulted in a reduction in some of our raw materials um, just because it, it controls a little bit tighter on the, on the lime. But one of the things which was positive for us as well and for, for DEFA was when we did the, the cross-checking of the results with our third-party analyst, they were pretty much exactly the same as we were getting on the old ones. So from a, a um, reliability point of view, it showed that although the old system was old and needed replacing, the results it was putting out were still accurate. In Bob Interbuildings, I've been looking into the design and management of the energy from waste plant on Richmond Hill. My thanks to all who contributed to the programme. You can listen again and also to previous programmes in the first and second series as podcasts on manxradio.com. I'll be back next week, same time, to focus on another of the island's iconic buildings. Mark Tiley with Greatest Hits is next. So from me, Bob Harrison, good evening.